Good morning. One of the things I love uh, about the church just sitting there this morning is you have uh, Callie up here singing. Callie, how old are you now? Nine. And then you multiply that times 10, and you have Pastor Weaver up here at 91 reading the scriptures. I just think that's a, it's a wonderful thing. It's a beautiful thing. Let me pray and ask the Lord to be with us. Father, as we come now before you, it is our heart's desire that you would be with us in a powerful way, that even as you have said in this text, you are the light of the world. I pray that we would see you as you have said that you are, that we would see you in your glory, that after seeing you, we would savor you. We would hold you close because you are worthy of our intimacy. You're worthy of our worship. You're worthy to be made much of. And so in this next few moments, as we listen to your word, as we teach your word, I pray the distractions would be removed and that you would be at work through the power of your Holy Spirit speaking to us as only you can. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. And so, I want to uh, read again to you just, just verse 12 by way of intro, because we're going we're gonna to hover over verse 12 for a while, and then we're going to move through some of the other verses a little faster. But look, look what uh, John, the writer, has said in verse 12. He says, Again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Some of you probably don't know this. All of you are welcome, um, at least the men in this particular case. On Tuesday nights, uh, myself and some of the men in the church, we meet in the Sunday school room here, and we meet from 8 to 9.30. And uh, we have since corrected the problem, so I don't want you to fear. But there have been a few nights, because it's dark when we go in there, and the, the church is dark, that when we come into the room, we cut the light on, and little black creatures scurry. Some call them cockroaches. And I had to get on to Dave Brown. He meets with us because he was stomping on them, and it looked like he was dancing. And I said, there's no dancing in the Baptist church, Dave. You can't do that. We've noticed, though, that uh, we've you know, called the exterminator, and we've got some help with these roaches. But you can never get them all. And it's interesting to me that roaches, when the lights come on, they don't run to the light. They run to darkness. And we have all experienced that at different times, haven't we? Our scripture today teaches, even though Jesus stands and he says, I'm the light of the world, people don't run to the light. Often, they run to darkness. And we're going to talk about why that is. Before we get to that, i got to set the stage. Um, last week, we took a, a, a diversion because 
we talked about the lady that was in adultery and how or if it fit in the text. If you read your text at 7.53 and then jump to 8.12, the text reads very smooth. But when you add that story, not so much. But we are back to Jesus being at the tabernacle, and he is in the midst of a discourse where he is telling them from 7.52 to 8.12 is where the the connection is. Um, But he tells them earlier, it's 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 a discourse where the Pharisees are asking questions and he's giving answers. And so you see the progress of the festival. They call it the Festival of Tabernacles. You see the progress of that. And on this final day... Jesus has made a tremendously important announcement. And the announcement was that he was living water and that anybody that drank from him out of his heart would flow rivers of living water. Now, if you uh, look with me there at 8.12, just kind of hold your finger there. Jesus is still at the tabernacle, and he's standing in the temple, and it's the final day of the tabernacle. And Jesus is saying, just like there was water, and I used the image of water at the tabernacle, now I'm going to use this image of light. And it's important to understand kind of the context of what is happening here. In verse Uh, excuse me, in chapter 6 at the Passover, Jesus said, I am the bread of life. So you imagine the scene, they're at the Passover and Jesus holds up this bread and he says, I'm the bread of life. And then in chapter 7 at the Feast of the Tabernacle, they, they are literally on the last day pouring out picture after picture onto this arid, dry temple And water is flowing through the rocks, and Jesus says, I am the water of life. But now we come to chapter 8, so that's 6 and 7, and in 8, he stands and he says, I am the light of the world. So the question that I had when I read it is, is he doing this again? Is it, you know, bread, water, and light? And the answer to that question is, is this. In the Mishnah, which is actually a Hebrew book, or it's part of a book found in the Talmud, there is a lavish description of both the water ceremony that happened at the temple on the last day and of the light ceremony. And it explains why Jesus would have done what he did in this particular situation. So, to give you the the picture... There were four large stands, I mean enormous stands. Think about like an Olympic bowl. Um, And there placed were in them four golden bowls. Four large stands, four golden bowls. So how many golden bowls do you have total? All my Georgia Tech people said 16. So uh, there's four stands, four bowls in each, 16 bowls. They fill these bowls with an oil that will burn throughout the night. They're huge bowls. They're reached by climbing up a ladder to fill these bowls with the oil. 
And then they used the Levite priest garments as wicks. Now, all this is happening as the festival is coming to a close. You think about the Olympic opening ceremony and then the closing ceremony, something like that. These 16 bowls filled with oil, the wicks are set in place, which are the Levites' used garments, and then they light them. And you got to remember, in Jerusalem, there was no electricity. It's not like every house was lit up. And so against the yellow limestone backdrop, 16 of these enormous torches are lit. And they say that you can see it from miles away. And it is against that backdrop that our Lord Jesus stands up and he says, I am the light of the world. And whoever believes in me and follows me will have eternal life. Could you imagine the picture and just how bold that would be to stand up in the middle of such a ceremony and say, it's all pointing to me. And that's the thing that I don't want you to miss. All of that, all of the ceremony was set up for that moment for Jesus. God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit had gotten the Israelites to prepare these ceremonies so that they would point us to the true Messiah. So the moment is there, and Jesus stands and he says, I'm, I'm the reason all of this is lit. I'm the one. I'm the Messiah. And so when I'm in my study reading this, I'm thinking to myself, that's fascinating. <clears throat> the picture's fascinating. You would think, though, at that moment, people would <clears throat> just start streaming towards the light. Why would they not? And if you look at 8.30 in your text, the last verse of our text today, it says that some did. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. As he was saying these things, many, they did. They believed in him. But the question that I have is, why do so many not believe? Not just then, but now. Why do so many people not believe that Jesus is the light of the world? And to answer this, John has already really answered it. Over in John 3, turn with me if you would. John 3, verses 19 and 20. Jesus answers my question pretty clearly. My question is, why do so many not believe? Not just then, but today. Why, is, why, why are things the way they are? Look at John 3, 19 through 20. It says this, And this is the judgment, that light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. Now, remember, I started with a story about Tuesday night and walking into a dark room and turning on the light and all the roaches scattering to find darkness, to find cover. And then I said, my question is, why do so many not believe? And the gospel of John is telling us 
is because it's not that we do not see the light. When I think about even some of my family members, why do they not believe? It's not that they don't see the light. It's that they love darkness. And before I became a Christian, it wasn't that I didn't know about the Bible. It wasn't that I didn't know about Jesus. It's that I love the darkness. That's a problem. Why do we love the darkness? Why is that? Hebrews 11.25 should be up there on the screen, I believe. If not, I'm going to read it. Choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God, and then it says, than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. In other words, sin is pleasurable. It's fleeting, but it does bring pleasure. We have to admit that. Sin for a season can be very pleasurable. And I think we all experience that. We all know that. We are like uh, our children. You know, we just had Halloween. We're like our, our children at Halloween as adults. People are. The excess sugar that they want, actually, we know if they eat enough of it, it's poison to their bodies. But their taste buds tell them, I love sugar. I want more sugar, more, 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 until, you know, perhaps they end up throwing up their sugar. And as parents, we wish we could stop them from craving sugar and craving candy and push them towards craving foods that are good for their body, like good green vegetables and fresh fruit and those things. The problem is the taste buds. The problem is their taste buds say, I love sugar. So how do we get someone's taste buds to quit saying, I love sugar, to I love fruits and vegetables? And if they're a child, I will tell you, I think that that is impossible. And I will also say, as adults, it is impossible to quit loving darkness and sin and to start loving God and truth and holiness and goodness and righteousness unless somehow our taste buds are changed. That is the only way we can quit running from the light and run to the light. There's got to be something that happens in us that transforms us that changes our taste buds, that changes our heart's desire. We can't make ourselves want the right things. We can't make ourselves desire it bad enough. Something supernatural has to happen to us. John, I mean, excuse me, Job 20 verse 5 says that the, that the exalting of the wicked is short and the joy of the godless, but a moment. So the pleasures that sin bring are so fleeting. And then Galatians 5.21 says this, because here's where I'm going with this. When I read this verse over here about John 3, and I said, than the light because their works were evil, for everyone who does wicked things, when you think of wicked things, 
you probably have in your mind murder, rape, racism, some of these things. Jesus came and he said, wicked things is like in Galatians 5.21. The very first word he says, envy, drunkenness, orgies. Now you think, I don't do drunkenness or orgies, but do you do envy? Do you do selfishness? Do you do pride? Do you do arrogance? I warn you, as I have warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Those who do, and so we are all, the Bible says we're all wicked. Apart from a transforming Holy Spirit work in our lives, we are all wicked. And we all run to darkness. And Joseph is having to run to darkness, hopefully to light. Or maybe, maybe we're like the Pharisees. Our sin is that of morality, of self-righteousness, our pride. Um, another has said it better than me, says that the greatest adversary of love to God is not his enemies, not God's enemies, but his gifts. And the deadliest appetites are not for the poison of evil. It's not like we go out looking for poison, but for the simple pleasures of earth. For when these replace an appetite for God himself, the idolatry is scarcely recognizable and almost incurable. What he's saying is, we don't run after evil. We know better. But we do run after the good gifts of God, and we place them at a higher value than we do God himself. And that's evil. Because God is the ultimate value in the universe. Anything that we place higher than God is evil. And God will, he will purify us if we're his. He will work those things out of us if we're his. So, the next part of this is the way to the light. What is the way to the light? How do we stop running from the light to darkness and to start running to the light? Psalms 97.10 says this, O you who love the Lord. So if you love the Lord, it says the next words, hate evil. If you love the Lord, hate evil. He preserves the lives of his saints. He delivers them from the hand of the wicked. And then Romans 12, 9, he says, let love be genuine. Again, he uses a strong word, abhor what is evil. Hate what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. And then in Romans 12, 1 and 2, Paul tells the Romans, he says, I appeal to you, therefore, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed, in the NIV, I think it says, do not be conformed any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. But be transformed by the renewing of your mind. You get this idea that 
honestly, if we just live life in coast mode, you know where coast takes us? It takes us to the darkness. It's kind of like my diet and my eating. If I get on my fitness pal and I start taking track of everything I eat and I go and I exercise at the gym, what I have found is that I start wanting to eat better because I'm tracking what I'm eating, I'm exercising. All of a sudden, I come home and I look in the pantry and there's a cookie and what used to be irresistible for me, that cookie, I just go, ah, yeah, that's, uh, that's 200 calories I don't need. I just worked out. Maybe I'll eat an apple, you know? It's almost that way spiritually. As we begin to pursue God and we begin to fall on our knees and beg God to help us find Him, there is this momentum that comes with that. We can't just will ourselves, though, like I'm talking about physically with food. There must be, and it will not work without, a Holy Spirit work that we ask God to come in us, at least initially when we become Christian, and live His life through us, but then there's a continual filling of the Spirit and asking God to live His life through us, to give us the strength to walk with Him in truth and goodness and, and holiness. And it's never easy. All right, so that's verse 12, and I'm going to throw you a little bit of a twist right here at the end of verse 12. God may, I'm talking about running to the light, running from darkness. God may use darkness to help you see the light, just as he does in his created world. You know, have you ever thought about it like this, that everything that you see in this world, and I believe this is true, everything, families, marriages, children, daylight, darkness, these are all concepts that God came up with realities created by him to help us understand spiritual realities. So God gives darkness so that we know what light looks like. You see, we learn what our faith is made of when God brings in the darkness or he takes away some of our comforts and some of our pleasures. Maybe our health goes away or we lose someone dear to us. And we begin to see where our joy has been placed wrongly or where our treasures have been placed poorly. The question that I have for us is this. How are you stewarding your suffering? There's nobody in the room that doesn't suffer at some level. The question is, it's like finances, it's like time management. How do you steward your suffering? Because it is in our suffering, I believe, that God is going to reveal to you more of himself than you're ever going to get in your pleasures. And you know what we do in our suffering typically is we beg God to take it away. Now, that's just human nature. I get that. But I think there's a, there's a next level. And the next level is seeing his glory is far greater than being rescued from your pain. 
Seeing God's glory is far better than being rescued from your pain. So you may be in horrendous pain, and I don't make light of that, and God and the Scriptures don't make light of that. But what God is probably doing is trying to reveal himself to you in ways you can't ever imagine. I got a friend. His name is Brett Weber. I've known Brett since I was 20 years old. I had just become a Christian. He had just become a Christian. Brett was born with cystic fibrosis, which some of you know that disease. It's a horrible lung condition that at the time when I met Brett, he believed he would live to be 28 or 29. That was the life expectancy for somebody with CF that many years ago. Brett and I were new Christians, and Brett was learning things about God at a pace that I could never keep up. It was like he was a, a weight room junkie in the sense that he was just growing spiritually, like somebody that just stayed in the weight room all the time. Spiritually, you could see his muscles. And so one day, we're sitting out by his room outside, and I said, Brett, how is it that you seem to grow faster than everybody else? You know what Brett told me? First, he said, how many times have you been to the hospital? I said, I don't know, four or five. He said, I can't count how many times I've been to the hospital. He said, I go into the hospital regularly for these lung treatments, and there have been a few times that I went that they thought I was dying. I can't tell you how many times I have faced my own death. And then he said, Clint, do you, do you look forward to getting married and having a family? I said, you know I do. And he said, I don't, because I'm not going to be alive. I'll be dead by the time I'm 28. I never dream about marriage. I never dream about children. You know what I dream about? I dream about making these last eight years of my life count for all eternity, because I've only got about eight years, and I want to make the most of them. So a couple of years ago, I hadn't talked to Brett forever. I didn't even know, honestly, if he was still alive. Thanks to social media, found him on Facebook, couldn't believe it. I contacted him on Saturday, uh, no, Friday, this, this Friday, and he was in the hospital, and I said, what you doing? He said, well, having some health issues with my lungs, struggling right now, I'm going through some treatments. We were interrupted several times by doctors and nurses, and I said, Brett, what are you doing now? He said, oh, Clint, for the last 16 years, I've been a chaplain at the hospitals here in Birmingham. And I said, Brett, that's got to be hard because you're dealing with a lot of loss and death. And he said, oh, it's horrendous at times. And uh, he said, you know, I had this one situation about a year ago. I got a text. The way it works is they'll text me and tell me to be at the hospital for some situation. And he said, I got a text, and in the text, it doesn't say a lot usually, but it said, young boy, fractured skull, very unstable, probably will not live, and meet his mother at whatever hospital. So I go to the hospital, I ask around, and they say the mother's in the chapel. Uh, in the, the chapel. So I went into the chapel, and she's down on her face on the carpet, and she's pleading with God to save her child, her only child. And he said, I got down on my knees, then down further onto my face, 
and I whispered into her ear, you know that God loves you. And she turned with tears running down her face and she said, I do know that he loves me. And then he said, I said to her, do you love him? And she said, I do love him. Talking about the Lord, not her son. And he said, he said, I don't know where this came from. I just said it. But he said, do you love the Lord? No strings attached. And she looked at him and she said, I don't know if I know how to do that. He said about two months later, this, the, her little boy died that night. He was with her through the whole process. Sat, he said, mostly, Clint, I just sit with them and listen. If they ask, I will pray. She sent me a letter two months later. And in the letter, she said, Brett, I don't know what I would have done without you. You were the only one who could understand that kind of pain and suffering, I believe. And she said, I want you to know, and he said, she wrote in big, bold letters at the bottom, I love him, no strings attached. What about you? Do you love him for his gifts? Do you love him for what he gives you? What if he takes away? Job said, he gives, but he also takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And I know, I don't know, I know that I don't know what some of you do know, and that is horrific pain and loss. But I promise you, God will be with you in that pain. God will be with you in those losses. You are not alone. He will walk with you every step of the way. Jeremiah 29, 13 says, You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. Not, that's not a half-hearted seeking. That's a getting on your knees and on your face like this woman and pouring out your soul to God and saying, I can't do this on my own. Lord, will you carry me? You've got to carry me. Switching gears. Verses 13 and 14 of our text, John 8. In John 8, 13 and 14, this is what it says. So the Pharisees said to him, you are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Jesus answered, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true, for I know where I came from and where I'm going, but you do not know where I came from or where I'm going. Now, what's happening here with the Pharisees? Again, as they do, they're trying to trap Jesus in his own words. They're saying to him, and they're referring back to John 5.31. So what happened in John 5.31? Look there. It says, Jesus says this. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. That's what Jesus said. If I bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. So the Pharisees are saying in response, 
They're saying you're bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Have they caught Jesus in a contradiction? He really did say that in John 5, 31. But what did he mean in the context? He meant, if my testimony comes from myself, if it originates with me, if I am witness to myself, disconnected from the Father, then I'm a liar. I'm false. I'm not true. But, but what really is happening right here is he says, I'm the light of the world. He never even comes back to the light thing. They, they challenge him on what he's saying. And for 17 verses following, he just talks about his relationship with the Father. Because ultimately, if they get that he's really from the Father and with the Father, they'll finally get his identity. So he's not worried about continuing on with this idea about being the light of the world. He's, he's willing to go down their detour that they're taking him down to show them, yes, I'm not testifying about myself. Me and the Father are in this together. I'm God. And you're going to see in a moment their response. But look at John 15, 18. They say to him, or he says to them, excuse me, you judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. We're going to get back to why did Jesus say he judges no one. Yet, even if I do judge, my judgment is true. For it is not I alone who judge, but I am the Father who sent me. In your law, it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. So he's saying, I've got a witness, and it's God the Father. It is the ultimate witness. You bear witness about yourself. And he's basically also telling them, your judgment versus my judgment. That's what he's doing. All right, your judgment. Let's talk about your judgment. You judge according to the flesh. In other words, you don't have spiritual eyes. You judge based on what you see. You can't even see what I'm seeing. You're just seeing with your natural eyes. And so your judgment is crazy. It's not good. And then he says, but I judge with spiritual eyes. And I judge with the Father. Now what he's also saying is, this time when he comes, because he says, I don't judge. When he came down, he came to redeem and to do the work of the cross. When he comes back the second time, he comes to judge. The first time, he's here to redeem and to do the work of the cross. That's what he's saying. I didn't come to judge, not this time, but I will come back to judge. And so, we cannot see spiritually all that God sees. And this connects in our judgment to our pain and our suffering that I talked about a moment ago. If we could see, and this is where faith comes in, if we could see with spiritual eyes, not with just eyes of the flesh, the things that are the hardest things in our lives, I believe we would say, God, you're amazing. I can't, I can't imagine. I could have never in that life 
imagine that you would do that with that. That's by faith. But it isn't about this world. This world is so fleeting. It's really, it's really about the next. All of this, it's about the next. Night and day, right and wrong, families, marriages, all of these things are given to us to help us see what, what will be one day. That's what's happening here. And we can't make, we can't make sense of it. Our minds are so finite. He is so infinite and all-knowing. There's no way you can put the puzzle together. There's no way you can figure it all out. Your judgment is tainted by your own sin, and so is mine. And so, in John 21, 8, 21, this is what he says. So he said to them again, I'm going away, and you will seek me, and you will die in your sin. Where I'm going, you cannot come. What he's saying is, I'm going to heaven to be with the Father, and if you don't believe in me, when you die, you will die in your sin. And there will be no, no longer hope for you. That's what he's saying to them. And then in 20, John 8, 24 and 25, he says, I told you that you will die in your sins. How many times has he told them that? For unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. And listen to what they say. Finally, finally. So they said to him, who are you? And Jesus said to them, just what I've been telling you from the beginning. I mean, I can almost hear him kind of laughing. Like, I've been telling you this from the beginning. And, and finally, you say, who are you? And then 28. 28 is where it all kind of, he, he basically says, you're going to see who I am. I, that question will be answered. So Jesus said to them in 28, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, you know what he's saying there? You guys are going to crucify me, and you're going to lift me up on a cross. And when you lift me up, then you're going to know. He says, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. So he's saying, you yourselves are going to be responsible, and you're going to see it, and you're going to know. And then verse 29, he says, and who who sent me is with me. Remember, you're not going to go through this life as a Christian by yourself. He'll be with you. When, when darkness comes, when pain comes, when life throws you a curveball you can't hit, he will be with you. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. God is not going to leave him when he's lifted up, when he's being crucified. Now, we know there's this moment that's mysterious about God, the Father, and the Son. But ultimately, we know 
where the sun ends up. And ultimately, as God's children, we know where we end up. God will never leave you or forsake you. And so he says, you're going to lift me up. You're going to crucify me. And when I'm crucified, my role is the saving, redeeming, creation-feeling light of the world will be secured. And I will rise and reign and shine forever. And that day will come when you will know this. You can know now and have your sins forgiven, or you can be the ones who crucify me and die in your sins and find out when it's too late what the truth really is. That's the message. Jesus is the light of the world. But the reason more people don't seem to be streaming to the light is because we love darkness. God has to do a redemptive work in our souls for us to come to the light. And so I'm not telling you, do better, be more moral, be better, be more righteous. No, if you're struggling in sin or if you in any way sense that you don't know the Lord, the only hope for you is a work of the Holy Spirit through the forgiveness of Christ to come into your life. Now, if you do know the Lord and you're struggling in sin, it's the same answer. The work of God, the Holy Spirit, forgiving you of your sin as you fall before Him and ask Him for forgiveness and ask Him to change your desires, change your taste buds, stop chasing after the candy of this world and chase after all that is good and true and right and life-giving. God will use darkness in our lives. Don't waste your pain. We all have it. Find God in your pain. Oh, Father, would you help us do that? We know we will not get out of this life without pain and suffering. Would you use it as you intended it to be, that we might know you deeply and personally? God, would you work in our hearts to that, to that end, I pray in Jesus' name.